0: There are a number of different sounds that are pleasant to one's ears. The singing of the songs that we have engaged in, joy to the world, talking about the fact that our Savior is here. That he came to this earth to live a life is a beautiful sound. The sound of pages turning in the Bibles is always a pleasant sound, especially to those of us who preach that you're paying attention and following along and doing your very best to engage with what we're trying to talk about. The sound of children, even if they are a little bit sometimes cantankerous in services, is a very pleasant sound as well. Because as we often say, a church without the sounds of children fussing from time to time is a church that is probably doomed to failure in the generation or generations to come. So for those of you that are mothers and fathers of young children... We're thankful for the work that you do, we're thankful for your presence, and we're thankful for the presence of each and every person that is gathered here today, and those that are listening, and those that are online. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, where we're going to begin our study in just a couple of moments. Appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you, and to hopefully share some things that are helpful in a world that is filled with so much Emphasis on me, myself, and I. Because this is a world in which we live wherein the world seems to revolve around ourselves. And we can be involved in that, but we've all known individuals who are very selfish, who are very self centered, who are very self motivated, and they think that the world revolves around them. And we can be guilty of that if we're not careful. But we need to make sure that we are men and women who realize that the gospel is not necessarily about us, but it is about the Savior and about the message that he came to teach and preach. But I want to talk about a different kind of gospel today when we talk about the gospel of me. In a world filled with so much selfishness and a world that is filled with so much self-motivation, what is the gospel of me? When we think about me, 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 we think about the idea of what's best for me, what do I need in my life, what am I going to get out of this? There are even individuals who leave churches because they aren't getting enough out of the services. And of course the cliche response is one, what are you putting in, what are you giving, what are you introducing to make it better for yourself? And remember that it's not about us, it is about our Lord. When you think about Christianity, it can be very well kind of summarized by saying we are no longer concerned about ourselves, but we are instead concerned about Jesus Christ and Him alone. In fact, it's what we sometimes call the joy principle, where Christ comes first, others come next, and then myself comes last. And someone once suggested that that is indeed the joy principle. Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. If you want to experience joy, each day you'll do a golden deed and you will put others first. And as our brother John talked about in our Bible study period this morning, Jesus was all about the importance of doing for others And showing to others the kindness in a world that is filled with so much selfishness. That's why the gospel of is always about God. And I put the phrase the gospel of in quotes for a reason that I'll get to in just a couple of seconds or so. When you think about the gospel, we understand what we mean by the gospel. And we have to define that if we're going to talk about the gospel of me. We need to figure out what we're talking about when we talk about the gospel. It is the good news or the same word that we get evangelism from. The same word that we get evangelist from. A spreader of that good tidings or good news. And the thing is, is it's interesting to look at the phrase, the gospel of those two words together at least in the new king james version in the text and you'll find that that phrase the gospel of is used some 30 times in the new testament never does it talk about the gospel of me so you may say well how are you doing the sermon on the gospel of me when it's not found in the bible well the fact is is we live in a world where a lot of people have the gospel of me as their text and that's the book they read from and that's the, the book that they get their direction from. For example, the gospel of Jesus Christ it is referenced some 13 times in the New Testament. The gospel of God, some 8 times. And the gospel of the kingdom, 4 different times. And even though the gospel of me is not a phrase that is found from Matthew to Revelation, it is a powerful gospel. And it is a gospel that is very powerful indeed. This is a gospel that reads the following... To understand the gospel of me, it's easy. Just reverse some of the key core concepts of New Testament Christianity. So what we're going to do in our study today is we're going to define the gospel and figure out what it reads like. We're going to then secondly determine what it results in. And then thirdly, we're going to figure out how do we repent of the gospel of me? Because chances are all of us at some point have been students of the gospel of me. And have read from that text. And have lived from that text. And chances are you know of someone who thinks that the world revolves around themselves. And we need to make sure that we share this message with them so that they can make the appropriate changes moving forward. Let me suggest to you three aspects of what we have to reverse in order to get the gospel of me. One of those is a perversion of do unto others. And so I've asked you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. And I want to read four or five verses here from the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mountaintop as uh, rendered in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 or here in Luke the 6th chapter. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. You know, in three words... Just three little words. Already we have the gospel of me to be addressed. And we have three words that are offensive to the world. Because the world says if you are my enemy, then I can hate you back. But Jesus plainly says that's not the way that we are to treat others. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other as well. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. This is in many ways a a concept that we sometimes call the, the golden rule. Where we treat others the way that we would want to be treated. The same way that we want others to act and speak towards us is the way that we act and speak towards them. But what do we oftentimes do? And when I say we, hopefully not members of the Lord's church, but human beings who live in a world that is filled with so much selfishness. And so much it's all about me and about what I want. Before they can do it to you, I'm going to do it to them. You've heard of people who treat you like that. Well, before you have the opportunity to hurt me, I'm going to go and I'm going to attempt to hurt you. And that hurts us. That hurts the reputation of the person who is involved in that kind of behavior. Or secondly, self-preservation comes first. You know what? I've got to preserve myself. Now, there is something to be said for principles in the New Testament about not allowing people to walk all over you. You know, the idea of someone steals $100 from you and say, okay, well, you want another $100 to steal? And then you want another $100 to steal? That's not what the New Testament is teaching. But instead, what is being taught is that it's not about me anymore in this world. When I look at myself in the mirror, a Christian says, it's not about me, it is about my Savior. And whatever it takes to get to that place where others see Christ in me, that's what matters the most. And then the third aspect of this is that if someone else is mean, the gloves come off. That's what people in the world suggest. And that's the way your co-workers treat you. And that's the way your co-workers treat their fellow co-workers. And that's the way your friends of the world or your individuals with whom you are associated in the world conduct themselves. Well, if you're mean to me, I'll be mean to you. That's just fair. Little children would say... Well, he was mean to me, or she did it first, so I have the right to respond back in kind. That's the gospel of me, and it's a perverted gospel of what Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6. Secondly, the gospel reads like this, where we are never satisfied and never content. Our brother John also referenced 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I think that's a great passage to read. We'll just read a couple of verses of those five that I referenced. But this is a misquoted passage, you know, in many circumstances. Because people in the world will tell you that money is the root of all forms of evil. And we know that that's not true. We know that the love of money is the root of all types or forms of evil. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, he says, Godliness with contentment Is great gain. I want you to think about, and I don't want you to get depressed by thinking about worldly people and about people that that drive you crazy in the world, but I want you to think about someone that you've known or someone that you know that is very worldly, very focused on himself or herself. So just take five seconds to think of who that person may have been or is. All right, so you've got your person in mind. I've got my person in mind. Now, sometimes that's me in the past. And sometimes me in the present, where I'm weak. But I've got someone in mind who's a very worldly-minded individual that I know. And verse 6 would be very much in conflict. Godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into this world. It is certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. And then verse 10. The love of money is a root or the root of all forms of evil or all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through in many sorrows. And before you think that this is something that is not applicable to those of us as Christians... Notice that verse 10 says those who are of the faith have strayed from the faith for this very cause. So as, as Brother John pointed out rightly this morning, it is possible that the affairs of this world, financial or otherwise, can so entrap us and so involve us that we lose our faith, that we lose our place in the kingdom of God. What about this? What comes first, your career or Christ? You know, Brother Brian talked about this Wednesday night and did an excellent job of the invitation talk, as he always does, as all of our men do, such an excellent job. But the point that he was making in talking about those crusaders was, are you going to put your career out so that you are not baptized fully? I'll baptize everything and submit everything to God except my career. There are individuals who are present here this very moment who today or in the last days stood up and said... I'm not coming to work because the Lord's day is coming. And risked their jobs as a result of it. And there are individuals who are here... that have made that choice in the past. And I'm not suggesting that there aren't times... where you get into a bind... and especially if you're self-employed... or you are a critical employee... if you uh, are in a, some particular position... where you can't get out of it. But you understand the point that I'm making... Is the Lord comes before my career. If that means I don't get the advancement that I otherwise would get by hanging out with the guys and telling dirty jokes with them, that's what it means. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is a passage that came to mind as I was thinking about this particular study. In the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 2, verse 24, I just want to read that one verse here. Notice what Solomon had to say. Solomon, a wise man who was, in some ways, understood the the dangers of selfishness. And he says, Nothing is better for a man than he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. The whole idea of godliness with contentment is great gain. Let me suggest, thirdly, that the gospel of me reads, Wherein we love me. And we love I. You know, I'm not a big seafood person. But there is one seafood dish that is very dangerous. And that is self-fish. It's one of those dad jokes, right? (laughs) Selfish is bad fish. That's the only fish that the Bible says don't eat. Right? Unless you're in the Old Testament and you have some crustaceans that you have to avoid. Right? But you understand the point that I'm making is that selfishness is dangerous. Look at me if you would. In Luke chapter 11, you already know where I'm going. Luke chapter 12, you already know which story I'm going to go to because it's such a powerful account in Luke chapter 12. And we're not going to read all of 13 through 19. We'll just skim a couple of verses because either a) you're familiar with the account of this rich man who is called a fool, or you can read it on your own time. But he says, take heed and beware of coveting. For one's life, verse 15, doesn't consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he talks about this man who says, look at all the wealth that I have accumulated. And if you read those six or seven verses, you'll find in the course of three verses, 11 times the words me and I and myself are used. This was a person who loved himself. This was a person that looked in the mirror and said, you're special. You are cool. You are important. You are valuable. Now, I'm not here to suggest that you're not valuable, that you're not important. And again, I don't want you to walk away saying that's the most depressing sermon I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) But it's not about you. And it's not about me. Life on earth is not about us. And what we... Get involved in is in a world, and Brother Thaxter talked about this a a few weeks ago, is everything is about us. And it's about feeling good. And it's about feeling good at the expense of doing what is right versus doing what is wrong in that debate that we involve ourselves in. Following this gospel makes one a fool. Because he says to him in verse 20, he says, You are a fool, and this night Your soul will be required of you. This is an incredible lesson for those of you who are younger. uh, And those of you that are in high school and those of you that are in college or recently graduated from college or recently got your trade or whatever the case may be. Because you are in a a world that stresses get more, get more, get more. It's all about you and get yours. Don't lose your soul over trying to get what it is is supposedly yours, is the advice that I think that we're trying to give today. Let me suggest, secondly, that the gospel results in a number of things, that when one follows the gospel of me, there are some serious and devastating consequences. So we've defined what the gospel looks like, perversion of due unto others, never being satisfied and focused on the riches, and loving me, myself, and I. But the wrong way of seeing and treating others is what will happen if you follow this gospel. If you are attuned to the gospel of me, you will treat others poorly. And you'll make the world a worse place. And you will have a reputation of being a bad person. And I use that word bad person, use that phrase kind of carefully. But the point that I'm trying to make is that people will maybe want to avoid you. Except for maybe other people of the world. Maybe they will be enjoying your company. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 39, Jesus talks to this subject very late in the gospel of of the book of Matthew. And he says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commandments, loving God and loving others, you can hang all the law and the prophets in verse 40. In the book of James chapter 1, which is a book that... Uh, we've been studying with the younger people all year. We're now to the last uh, chapter of the book of James. We talked about James 1:27, where it says, Pure and undefiled religion before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in the trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And when we put ourselves first, these commandments are not followed. You cannot follow Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine 39, or James 1, 27, or a host of other passages when you put yourself first. Remember the joy principle. Jesus first, others second, and then yourself comes last. Instead, what do we do? We do the Y-O-J principle sometimes. I'm not sure what that spells or how that's pronounced, but it's ugly the way it looks, and it's ugly the way it produces a life. Because yourself first, others next, and then I'll fit in Jesus where He can work Himself in. That's not the way we're supposed to do things. Secondly, this gospel results in the focus being put in or on the wrong place. Matthew five sixteen is a verse that is probably easily memorized. You probably know the verse, or at least know the concept. Let your good works so shine so that they may reflect. God and the Father in heaven. I'm paraphrasing Matthew 5 verse 16. I was at a church a number of years ago that had decals on their front door and on, on, on the front door as you would leave. And Matthew 5 16 was the verse that was posted there so that you would read that verse every time you came in and every time you left. Let your good works so shine or so reflect the Father in heaven. We do not do good to reflect on ourselves. Oh, sure we do in the sense that we want good reputations, and I understand that. And we want a reputation that when people hear your name, they say, Yep, he's honest, he's a man of integrity, or she's a person of, uh, of hard work and, and, and work ethic. We want that. But we want it so that it reflects on not ourselves, not our parents, not our upbringing, but on our God. That's where the reflection is to be. There are, it seems to me, a number of vital points to take from this single passage. One is that we must be different. That is taught in Romans chapter 12 and a number of other passages. Two, others should see that we are different. And three, we should appreciate that that's how God is glorified. That's all from Matthew 5 verse 16, a passage that should be memorized or at least memorizable, at least in concept. And let me suggest thirdly that when we think about the gospel and what it results in, it results in the real gospel not being spread. Because what we end up doing with our selfish motives, if we get involved in that kind of selfish thinking, is we spread that. And people know that we go to church. We know, they know that we are members uh, at a particular congregation, wherever that may be for you this morning. But our objective is to preach Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. He says, we preach Christ crucified. Now to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But, verse 24, to those who are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. As members of the Lord's church, We have an incredible responsibility of being ambassadors of Christ, as Paul says to the church at Corinth. in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we are not merely social good doers. It is important for us to be doing good to others. In fact, Galatians chapter 6 belabors that point by saying, Do good unto all, but especially to those of the household of faith. The point that I'm trying to make simply is this that if Jesus Christ is not the central component of our message, then our message is not central to Jesus Christ. So think about that for just a moment. If Christ is not central to our message, then our message is not central to Christ, and consequently we aren't doing what he's asked us to do. He has to be the center of who we are. He has to be at the very foundation of what we are. And that's the gospel that we believe in, And that's what the gospel results in if we adhere to the gospel of me. Let me close with this. And that is the gospel of me is one that is repented of by doing a number of different things. I would suggest that if you're thinking about the gospel of me, that leaving the gospel of me is hard. But it can and it must be done. Uh, The point that I'm making here at the outset of this final observation is that when you are in the world and go back to that person, whether that be yourself in the past, yourself in various recent points in the past, or someone else that is very focused on himself or focused on herself, that leaving that lifestyle can be very challenging, especially if you've done that for 30 or 40 or 50 years. That being said, I've known of some Christians who, after 30 years of being very self-centered, became Christians and then became some of the most powerful ambassadors for Christ you could ever meet. Remember, after all, that the Apostle Paul, before he was called Paul, was a man who was very involved with what was best for himself. So sometimes the people who are most involved in the world can be the greatest examples of change, moving forward into the future. But let me suggest to you three takeaways that aid in repenting. Number one is a really intense devotion to the truth. You know, David talked about this uh, a number of weeks ago when he was talking about some of the bedrock principles of our faith in one of his sermons. And he talked about the idea of being devoted to the truth. And he talked about the importance of being devoted to daily Bible reading, which we're going to talk about here in just a, a second or two. But let me suggest to you uh, this question that is not just for you, but is also for me. And that is, how often am I reading God's Word? And there's no perfect answer as to how often you should read the Word of God except often. And often may mean different things to different people, right? Right. But the point that I'm attempting to make is this. Let's just be very, very liberal in the way that we approach it. If you read your Bible maybe once a week, and it's on the Lord's Day, when you're forced to read it, and I'm using that word loosely because that's what the preacher said to do, you're not reading your Bibles as often as you should. I think we can universally agree to that. I hope we can. And I see some heads nodding yes, so that's good. <laughs> Because if, if you're going to say, well, I don't need to read my Bible book once a week and just cursory read through it when the, when the passages come up on the screen or in Bible class from Brother John or the other, if you're in the teenage classes or college classes when they're teaching, that's probably not enough. Now, I'm not about to tell you how often it has to be, although I can give you my opinion on that. But it needs to be frequent enough that you are getting more and more out of it. And and the interesting thing about studying the Bible is the more you study it, the more you want to study it. And the more you want to study it, the more you study it. Isn't that funny how that works? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, for they shall be filled. So are you reading God's word often enough is the second aspect of that particular question. Let me suggest that if you're going to repent of the gospel to me, you've got to get into the word and read the real authentic gospel because you've been reading the fake gospel too much, too often. Secondly, the gospel is repented of with a serious dedication to God in prayer. And again, I I am not just someone... Someone uh, uh, said a few weeks ago, you know, I appreciated that sermon and I responded as I often do and as I may respond today, if someone says this is a good sermon, who knows, maybe no one will say it's a good sermon. That's okay too. But we need a really serious dedication where I'm speaking to myself on this because I get so wrapped up in the world. I get so wrapped up in my responsibilities. I get so wrapped up in other things going on that I may think, huh, I haven't prayed in a while. That's not a good feeling when you say, oh, I just, that's, and you disappoint yourself, and you disappointed in your God. And if your brethren knew that, you, they'd be disappointed as well. So the two questions: how often am I praying to God? And am I praying to God often enough? And you know, 1 Thessalonians 5:17. You know the passages that talk about praying frequently. You know that Jesus said that men ought always to pray, not just sometimes pray, in Luke chapter 18, verse 1. You know those passages. But putting that into practice is sometimes difficult to do. And again, the more we pray, the more we'll want to pray. And the more we want to pray, the more we'll pray. Because prayer is essential to repenting of this gospel of me. And then thirdly, I need to surround myself with selfless Christians. Now, you are living in a world that is filled with a lot of selfish individuals, that's why it's so important to have a healthy dose of selflessness around you. So how often are you around selfless Christians? And are you around selfless Christians often enough? I put up on the screen 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, which is a verse that I became familiar with when I was a very young boy. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals or good habits. And that's an important concept to make sure that we get. There's two sides to that verse, by the way, at least it seems to me, at at a minimum of two sides. And that is if we hang around people of the world, they will drag us down. If we hang around people of faith, they will build us up. And so we've got to be cautious about the people that we choose to be close and intimate with and be friends with because they are the ones who are going to influence us, either poorly or positively. And so that's what we mean by the gospel of me, both in terms of defining it, resulting in it, and then how to repent of it. What about you and what about me? Where are we in our reading of the gospel of me? I hope that we have read it and that, well, well, let me rephrase that. We've all read the gospel of me. We're very familiar with it. And unless you're living underneath a rock, Somewhere, and you're living in modern 21st century United States, you've read the gospel of me. But how are you doing on saying, I want to close that book and open this one instead, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God, the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of power, the gospel of salvation. That's the book that we are to read from. Don't allow the world in which you and I live and with which we are surrounded to keep you at a place where you are so influenced by it that you allow it to begin bleeding into your life. And I'm speaking to, by and large, Christians today. There are a few who are here who have never become Christians, and we're hoping that you'll consider becoming a Christian today. But this is a message not for people of the world. This is a message for people of faith in that we need to make sure that we are reading the correct gospel and following that correct gospel. Do you believe in Jesus? As we're going to sing in just a moment. We hope that you do. We hope that you'll take that faith in Jesus and that you will build on it with your repentance, your confession of faith, and your obedience in baptism this very morning. If we can help you in any way, we would love the opportunity, as a child of God, if you're not living correctly, to make that correction. Do not allow the gospel of me to influence you any longer. If we can help, let us know while we together stand and sing.